Christian, do you want to read your Bible well? Do you want to read your Bible faithfully? Well, then, fundamental to reading the Bible well is good exegesis. Exegesis is a fancy word for careful reading. Exegesis draws the meaning out of the text. It answers the questions, what does this text actually say? What did the author mean by what he said? And careful exegetes pay close attention to words and their meanings and to the way sentences, paragraphs, and longer units are put together. Careful readers observe that the Bible is a book that includes many different styles of literature, stories, laws, proverbs, prophecy, poetry, history, parables, letters, and much more. Faithful Bible readers follow the flow of the text. For example, while it's always worth meditating on individual words and phrases, the most important factor in determining what a word means is how the author uses that word in a specific context. We'll be looking at the word mature later today in verse 6. Getting that word right is the key to everything. Get it wrong, and our exegetical rocket crashes into the sun. But one of the best signs of good exegesis is asking thoughtful questions. Thoughtful questions that drive us to listen attentively to what the Bible says. And as we read the text again and again, those questions are progressively honed. They're sharpened, corrected, or discarded. Our sermon passage today has a troubled history. Bible scholar Gordon Fee, who's written arguably the best commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, he tells us that this section of Paul's letter, quote, has endured a most unfortunate history of application in the church. Almost every form of spiritual elitism, deeper life movement, and second blessing doctrine has appealed to this text, even though each of these is nearly 180 degrees the opposite of Paul's intent. What he's saying is this text is used as biblical warrant to give certain types of Christians, those who believe they have received a second blessing of grace and power through God's Spirit, an inside track to knowledge. These Christians believe they're more spiritual in the sense that they belong to a separate category of believers. They claim special insight beyond the grasp of ordinary Christians. And if we challenge them on a point of doctrine, they may reply in the words of Paul in verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Which pretty much puts their viewpoint out of reach of all criticism, right? You're going to quote a text like that. Uh, and, and woe betide us if we try to push back. That only proves one thing, verse 14. 
The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. In other words, if you agree with such people, you're spiritual. If you disagree, you're not. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> and if we press them a little harder and ask, how do you know your interpretation is correct? What checks do you accept on your own authority? They may reply with supreme confidence in the words of verse 15. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. And if the person you're disagreeing with who believes these things is your pastor, oh, look out. As Carson warns, this sort of theological outlook leads to flagrant authoritarianism, utterly self-focused leaders who are accountable to no one but themselves. And, and I'd add this for free, New City. I've noticed firsthand that Christians who will not submit themselves to the word of God rightly taught, who will not humbly listen who will not be corrected by teachers God has provided his church, who are convinced that they have an inside spiritual track with God because they're operating on a higher spiritual tier. Deep, meaningful fellowship with such Christians is almost impossible. This, in turn, leads to their own stagnation, in sanctification and spiritual growth and ever more eccentric theologies. And I've seen this, even heresy. It's more than a little ironic that our text today, a passage that should teach us to be humble, has been used by some Christians to justify an astonishing measure of arrogance. And to my thinking, the reason why this passage is so sinned against is due to a lack of careful reading. Poor exegesis, not taking care to follow the flow of the Apostle Paul's argument, ignoring the context. Paul is not moving into new territory here, which is where I think so many go wrong. He's not discussing how Christians can access esoteric inside track with God, biblical wisdom. The cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is still controlling all of the apostles' discussion. He's still talking about what it meant when the rulers of this age crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8. He's pressing on with the argument that he began back in chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He hasn't deviated from that yet. But now the apostle wants to clarify something. Because he doesn't want to risk giving the impression that the message of the cross is foolish in every sense. Our sermon text today begins in verse 6. But let's pick up the flow of the passage, fellow exegetes, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom 
as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom. Look at your big picture in your bulletins. After explaining why he did not speak wisdom to the Corinthians when he entered Corinth in the first five verses, Paul qualifies that he actually does impart a different kind of wisdom to certain people, those with the Spirit. God has now revealed his wisdom only to persons with the Spirit. Those with the Spirit can understand God's wisdom because they indeed have the mind of Christ. This is why it's so sad and foolish for Christians to esteem worldly wisdom over God's wisdom as some of the Corinthians are doing. And let's be honest, New City, we do this all the time. Don't you find yourself doting on this world's heroes, admiring its transient stars? seeking the world's admiration and playing to its applause. A big mistake as we look at this text to think, oh man, those wicked, terrible Corinthians and letting ourselves off the hook. We're prone to this. This text is for us. We all need to combat worldliness. So let's start with verse 6 and 7. And let me just say at the, at the outset two things. These verses are glorious, and I love being a pastor. I've been marinating in verses 6 and 7 all week long. What a blessing this portion of God's word has been to my soul. I now think that these two verses may be my favorite in the whole book. They're awesome in the true sense of that word. And they tell us, things absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. So I'm going to take my time here. We're going to do this right. And as you can see in your bulletin, the sermon outline consists of three contrasts. And the first contrast is between those who receive God's wisdom and those who do not. Look at verse 6. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And as we read these verses, New City, the exegetical danger is that we divorce these verses from the context of the cross. We ignore the context. We ignore the flow of everything Paul's been saying. And so these verses appeal to our sinful pride. Our lust for spiritual one-upmanship. Our lust for that insider's track to knowledge. Misinterpret these verses. Divorce them from the cross of Christ. 
and we're in danger of becoming what I call Jedi Christians. Now, I coined this term myself, so bear with me. Uh, a Jedi, as every fanboy knows, believes in the Force. According to Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds the galaxy together. And, and Jedi have been trained to become sensitive to the Force's energy fluctuations and disturbances. Jedi can even control the Force and, and through it perform superhuman feats of strength and speed and endurance. And Jedi are in our midst. I kid you not. Um, I have a buddy from high school who practices Jediism. Uh, he just doesn't have any of those cool powers. But, but he does follow a Jedi philosophy, and from what I've read on Wikipedia, it's a pretty humdrum philosophy at that. But uh, anyway, let's say a bunch of Jedi were to set up shop on the corner of Young and Dundas. With sad devotion, they're passing out pamphlets and talking to passersby, trying to, to proselytize the masses to their made-up religion. I think it's safe to say that that serious, serious interest uh, would be minimal. You'd say, what's that? Your, your, your religion is based on a kid's movie from the 1970s? Give me a break. Uh, but suppose those Jedi start using the Force to levitate objects, to read people's minds. Or suppose using the power of the Force, they all jump from street level to the top of the Eaton Center in an aerial ballet of flips and somersaults. You know that if they could do that, if they did that, they'd be a viral YouTube sensation before the day was through, and there would be mass conversions to Jediism. Why? Because many people crave that kind of wisdom and power. For many, those sorts of abilities are the definition of wisdom and power. And what the Jedi believe about the Force must be true because they're backing up their claim with proof, right? They're jumping to the top of the Eaton Center. Wisdom and power are attractive. Wisdom and power make people sit up and notice. Wisdom and power lend legitimacy. But the point Paul's making, the point he's been making from chapter 1, verse 18 on, is that the power and wisdom of God Almighty is preeminently displayed in the message of the cross. It's in preaching Christ and Him crucified, a message that's foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. Human wisdom and strength are from God's perspective, rebellious folly, moral weakness. And if we misinterpret verses 6 and 7, if we divorce them from the cross, then we're in danger, I would say, of becoming Jedi Christians. Christians attracted to a worldly definition of power, a worldly definition of wisdom, the sort of power and wisdom people without the Spirit, people who despise the cross, clamor for. So, Christian, be on your guard. Be on your guard for the rest of your life, all right? You've been warned almost every form of spiritual elitism, deeper life movement, second blessing doctrine appeals to this text. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
And the one word in verse 6 that's caused endless debate and discussion is the word mature. And very often, this word, this verse, is connected with a subset of believers, namely the mature believers, which implicitly introduces a distinction in the fellowship of Christians, right? Um, there's, there are the mature believers and there are the immature believers, which is true. I'm not denying that. There are spiritually mature people and immature people in the church of God. Paul himself will make that point at the beginning of chapter 3. He goes so far to call the Corinthians milk-drinking babies. So how is that for immature? But that interpretation doesn't fit here, not in this context. Read the text carefully. This mature, the mature in this context, in verse 6, must refer to all Christians. All Christians who cherish the message of the cross over against the world that rejects the message of the cross. So the question is, why in the world did Paul choose this word, mature, to describe all Christians in this context? I mean, didn't, he must have known this was going to cause all kinds of pr- pr- problems down the road. I like Carson's take on this. He writes, almost certainly Paul chose this word because the Corinthians themselves loved it. And they loved to apply it to themselves. They thought of themselves as mature. And without suggesting that Paul wasn't a Christian, they thought of Paul and his message as immature. So let's be sure we get this right, New City. All Christians are mature. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five minutes. All Christians are mature in the sense that we've come to terms with the message of the cross. While all other people, by definition, have not. We saw this last week, didn't we? The cross, the crucified Messiah, divides the world absolutely. Humanity is divided into those who are perishing, into those who are being saved. And the dividing line between these two groups is the message of the cross, of Christ and him crucified. We do, however, verse 6, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. This is so important to understand. The, the wisdom of this age, even if the rulers of this age endorse it and espouse it, has no eternal value. None. And, and the rulers of this age probably refers not only to political officials, political officials like Pontius Pilate, but also to uh, the social leaders of worldly culture, so the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of chapter 1, verse 20, and the wise, influential, and those of noble birth, 126. Those rulers, they're the very best that this world can advance. They're the cream of the cultural crop, right? And yet they oppose the message of the cross. So God says they're doomed to come to nothing. They will have no part in the age to come. 
So why in the world would Christians side with the rulers of this age as to what's important? Why are we taking our cues from the world, from these guys? To embrace the wisdom of this age, that is just downright bad eschatology. Uh, It's short-sighted in the extreme. We're aligning ourselves with a party God himself opposes and whose eternal fate is already sealed. Paul's preaching that Christians are part of and destined for the new age. So he's basically saying, represent. (laughs) Um, Actually, I almost called my sermon title that day, represent, but cooler has prevailed. No, verse 7, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Man, what a verse that is. And for Paul, who uses this word 21 times in the New Testament, mystery. Mystery refers to something we could never figure out for ourselves, but that God graciously reveals. The only way we can know the content of the mystery is for God to reveal it. And the specific mystery Paul refers to in verse 7 is the wisdom of a crucified Messiah. God has now revealed that mystery to believers, but it remains hidden to unbelievers. But we need to read what Paul writes carefully. He doesn't want us to think that just because a crucified Messiah was in some measure hidden in the past, that its present unveiling is now something entirely brand new. It's some totally fresh departure in the mind of God. No, not at all. In God's mind, it stretches back before Time began, Paul writes. Which is why, in Revelation 13.8, the Apostle John describes Jesus, hear this, as the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In God's mind, it was always so. The leaders of Jesus' day, they thought they were being really shrewd to kill Jesus, to execute him, but they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Acts 4.28. What God had predestined to take place. And for what purpose? For our glory, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul writes, for our glory. Amen. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory Before time began. God has saved his people in the past. He is saving his people in the present. And he will save his people in the future. Destined for our glory, in verse 7, that refers to that future saving when God glorifies Christians. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. They don't, they don't get the mystery of a crucified Messiah. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So do you see the contrast? There's like a one-two punch here. The rulers of this age, in verse 6, they're, they're doomed to come to nothing. They have no part in the age to come. But Christians will be glorified. 
Therefore, therefore, and this is the whole point, the whole argument that Paul is making in this context, why in the world are Corinthian Christians adopting positions espoused by the rulers of a culture who do not know God, who do not love God, who do not understand the eternal mystery of Christ crucified, who in fact themselves crucified the Lord of glory, who are doomed eternally and have no part in the age to come. What utter foolishness. What blind rebellion that is. Why in the world would Christians side with that team? God himself has purpose to bring his plan of redemption to completion in the lives of all believers. The Corinthian Christians were destined for glory before time began. So why are they depreciating this this matchless heritage from God Almighty by becoming infatuated with the faddish fancies of these cross-denying opinion makers who belong to an age that's passing away? It's spiritual insanity. And again, it's not that the Corinthians are so bad. We do this all the time. I do this. Where's what God's accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ in my outlook, in their outlook? Why why isn't that front and center at all times? Verse 9, however, as it is written, and this is amalgam from uh, Isaiah 64, 4 and 65, 17, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul is not talking about heaven in that verse. I know that these words are very, they're often quoted at funerals to refer to the glories that await the believer after death. But in this context, Paul's words refer to what has been hidden in the past, but has now been revealed to believers. God's wisdom of a crucified Messiah. That's what that verse is about. He's saying neither human perception nor human reason can perceive the wisdom of God that's revealed in Jesus' death on the cross. No no mind can conceive of it. Verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Do you see the flow? So again, Christian, don't be duped. How foolish, how wretchedly foolish it is to honor with our allegiance the opinion makers of our day if they have no real understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't extol this passing world's perspective and secretly lust after its very blind, limited vision. Don't be suckered in by the world's applause. Who cares? Who cares? Do you recall from the book of Genesis um, what happened to Esau, the son of the patriarch Isaac? For a single meal, Esau sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. And that exchange was unthinkably perverse. For a single meal, Esau sold his inheritance rights. For a single meal, Esau exchanged his prerogatives as Isaac's firstborn son. For a single meal, Esau exchanged the assumption of leadership in his family. For a single meal, Esau exchanged his entitled double share of the inheritance. But even more importantly, Esau's status as Isaac's firstborn 
would have included the blessing of his father, Isaac, who passed on the blessings promised in the covenant God made with his father, Abraham. Have you noticed how Yahweh is always said to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Esau, the eldest son and rightful heir? Why is that? Because Esau traded away that covenantal privilege for a measly bowl of stew. He took God's covenantal blessings, those covenantal blessings integral to God's redemptive purposes, and he contemptuously flushed them down the toilet in exchange for some momentary gratification. To do such a thing showed his rebellious contempt for God's covenant of salvation. And it marked him out as a representative of those who turn their backs on the living God and his gracious saving purposes. The author of Hebrews uses him as an example. Brothers and sisters, to us has been given the fantastic privilege of benefiting from God's immeasurably wise plan of redemption. Shall we sell this awesome heritage for a, a bowl of measly, faddish, worldly stew. The rulers of this age, Paul says, are coming to nothing. Nothing. How foolish it is to honor with our allegiance the opinion makers of our day, the, the internet influencers, whatever, if they don't understand the cross. Don't listen to them. Here's where true wisdom's found. Christ and him crucified. But there's another element that characterizes the wisdom of God. Paul barely refers to it here, but then it takes over his presentation and becomes the focus of the second contrast that's laid out in our bulletin. But it's this. Even though God has now so definitively brought his all-wise plan to pass in the gospel of the crucified Messiah, people still don't believe it. They still don't see that God's plan is wise. But if we, the mature, have come to grasp it, it's only because God has revealed it to us by his spirit. In other words, there's not only been uh, an objective, public act, divine self-disclosure in, in, the, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's out there. The whole world can see it. But there must also be a private work of God by his spirit in the mind and heart of the individual. And this is what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. The mature from the people of this age and the rulers of this age. Which brings us to our second contrast. The spirit of God and the spirit of the world. And be it known, uh, for the next part of the sermon, I owe a, a plagiarizing debt to Don Carson's book, The Cross and Christian Ministry. Carson, I think, has a real gift uh, for putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He takes very difficult concepts, and he simplifies them. And he simplified it for me in a way that was a great blessing this week, so I want to pass that benefit on to you. Um, as always, all Star Wars illustrations are my own. Verse 10b, the Spirit searches all things. Even the deep things of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now, that's not the easiest passage to follow along with. Uh, What Paul's saying is that among knowing beings, right? So humans, angels, God, there are barriers that keep one knowing being from fully understanding what another knowing being is thinking about. If you're married, you know exactly what Paul's talking about. I've been married to Jill now for for 10 years. I'm not going to lie. I often have no clue what's going on in her mind. What, you wanted a gift for our anniversary? (laughs) And if we've been married even for 50 years, no matter how well I know her, I will never know all of Jill's thoughts. And no matter how well she knows me, she will never know all of my thoughts. However, the one knowing being who knows all thoughts, even the thoughts of God, is God himself. Or to put it another way, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And this word spirit, it's very flexible in the Bible. It can be used to refer to the interior of a human being, the inmost part, almost equivalent to mind. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? Which means the only one who can know a person's thoughts is that person themselves, namely their spirit. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In this case, the Holy Spirit. If we're to understand God, loved ones, if we're to truly think God's thoughts after him, if we're truly to know God, we must receive the Spirit of God. We simply cannot find him by ourselves. What's required here is revelation. And the agent who brings this revelation to us is the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And Christians have received the Holy Spirit. All of us, each one of us, not just a a sort of a special subset of the spiritual elite. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And the purpose of this gift of the Spirit is that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 12. The sad fact is, without the Spirit's revelation, a revelation that takes place within the individual, we would not have understood what God has freely given us. Not one of us. Our fallenness, our lostness, our our very deep self-centeredness, our love of pomp and power and prestige, simply would not have allowed us to understand the cross or our desperate need of it. This is the doctrine of total depravity at work. This is the 
noetic effects of sin, the effect that sin has on our minds. The Bible teaches us that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. That's why we become uh, ill and die. Uh, But it also, it affects our minds. It affects our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible tells us that our minds have been darkened and weakened. Our will is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will is in bondage. We're enslaved. That's the word Paul uses. We're enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, our whole person has been infected by the power of sin. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And that applies to our sweet old grandmother. She's no exception. Just as it applies to our kids, our parents, our favorite sports hero, movie star, and author. All have turned away. They had together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And at one time, that applied to every Christian in this room. Only those whom God spiritually illumines by his spirit, whom God spiritually raises from the dead by his spirit, can understand. We're going to come to verse 14 in a second, but what a powerful, powerful verse. Look at verse 14. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. So that means when we evangelize unbelievers, we're not presenting self-evident truth before unbiased observers. Uh, The Christian writer, Arthur W. Pink, he wrote this 100 years ago, and, and not much has changed, I'm afraid. He writes this, When addressing the unsaved, preachers today often draw an analogy between God's sending of the gospel to the sinner and a sick man in bed with some healing medicine on the table by his side. All he needs to do is reach forth his hand and take it. But in order for this illustration to be in any way true to the picture which Scripture gives us of the fallen and depraved sinner, the sick man in bed must be described as one who is blind, so he cannot see the medicine, Ephesians 4.18. His hand paralyzed, Romans 5, 6, that he is unable to reach forth for it. And his heart not only devoid of all confidence in the medicine, but filled with hatred for the physician himself, John 15, 18. Oh, what superficial views of man's desperate plight are today entertained. He said that 100 years ago. I would say the same thing today. Christ came here not to help those who are willing to help themselves, but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness, Isaiah 42, 7. 
which means our evangelism, brothers and sisters, is not so much setting forth compelling arguments uh, coupled with irrefutable apologetic tactics and incontrovertible historical evidence. That all has a part to play. I was saying this last week. Do your research. Do your study. Have that stuff under your belt. Uh, it builds up a godly confidence, a godly boldness when we talk to unbelievers. But apart from the Holy Spirit granting life to spiritually dead corpses, without the Spirit granting the sin-darkened mind understanding, there is no hope. But what a great, gracious, glorious God we have. Not only does he redeem us through the crucifixion of his beloved son, but he sends us his spirit to enable us to understand what God has freely given us. And it's this the same Holy Spirit who has prompted Paul to preach the message of the gospel in the way he has. Look at verse 13. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That means in his ministry, prompted by the Holy Spirit, Paul explained spiritual things, the message of the cross, in spiritual words, in words appropriate to the nature of the message. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit himself who taught Paul to avoid the wisdom and eloquence that empties the cross of its power. Chapter 1, verse 17. It's the Holy Spirit himself who has led Paul to deliberately avoid the kind of fancy rhetorical preaching characterized by wise and persuasive words that the Corinthians just clamored for. Explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Now, now, there is an epitaph any preacher should be proud to have on his tombstone. He explained spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. And Pastor Alex, this is for us. If we take the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians as God's truth, then we'll want to avoid all ostentatious display in our preaching, brother. All cheap manipulation. And we'll be happy to embrace the scandal of the cross because the cross is what's redeemed us. We declare God's wisdom, brother, a mystery God destined for his people's glory before time began, his own crucified son. So that means if it's not squarely anchored in the message of the cross, we'll be wary of, of quote-unquote, gospel preaching that talks a lot about God meeting our needs and enabling us to feel fulfilled. And we'll use plain, clear, forceful, truthful, frank, compassionate, compelling, cross-centered speech in our preaching. Spiritual language that's appropriate to the spiritual message we proclaim. So as you can see, loved ones, this is a text that is filled with contrasts. Worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. The world's spirit versus God's spirit. And now the third and final contrast listed in your bulletin the person with the Spirit versus the person without the Spirit. Verse 14 again. 
The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And what people without the Spirit find foolish in the context of chapters 1 and 2 is the message of Christ crucified, the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe, 121. That wonderful, glorious, life-transforming, redeeming good news is dismissed as folly, stupidity, stupidity, idiocy, and mania. As one commentator puts it, one does not clamor to embrace what one finds foolish. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Have you ever been in a situation where you're evangelizing two people at once? It's, it's not, in my opinion, ideal. It happens. You've got to be prepared for it. But I, I so much prefer just talking one-on-one with somebody as we're going through the gospel. Um, but I've been in a couple of contexts where there's been two people sitting at a table and explaining the gospel to both of them. And I've seen this, where one person says, I see it. I get it. That's, that's what the Bible says. That's who I am. I'm, I'm a sinner. God has done this. <gasps> the other person is like, Psh, this is preposterous. Same message. Two people. Two completely different reactions. What is the distinguishing factor? The ultimate distinction is the gift of the Spirit. To use the analogy that Paul uses in the next chapter, Paul may plant the seed and Apollos may water it, but only God can make the plant grow and bring forth fruit. Chapter 3, verse 7. But here's the tricky thing. It's very important, and you hear me say this a lot at New City in my preaching. We must constantly remember that this, this human inability... To, to understand spiritual things is a culpable inability. Human beings are guilty. We're responsible f- before God for this lack of understanding. It's not that God makes us constitutionally unable to understand him, and then he toys with us for his own amusement. No, he's made us for himself, but we've run from him. We don't want to know him. Not if knowing God can only be on his terms. We don't want a God to whom we must admit we are rebels in heart and mind, that we don't deserve his favor, and that our only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace. We don't want to take sides with God against ourselves. That's repulsive to us. And we certainly can't fathom a powerful creator who takes the place of a criminal in order to save us from the judgment we deserve. Good grief. Or rather, we can't fathom such things unless we have the Spirit of God. And then, the lights go on. I was talking to a lady in the park just this week who told me she could not believe in a God whose preferred gender pronouns are he, him. Such rebellion, such spiritual darkness. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Paul's saying 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, opens up entire vistas of understanding that would otherwise remain opaque to us. Just don't take that absolutely. I mean, people can take that verse and run with it like a torch, right? Paul's not saying the person with the Spirit, the Christian, can now make infallible pronouncements in the fields of study outside their area of expertise. So cancer research and physics, a word to the wise, infectious disease models. Context is king. As someone has said, the profane person cannot understand holiness. But the holy person can well understand the depths of evil. That's the contrast. In short, when Paul says the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, all things covers the entire gamut, the whole range of moral and spiritual experience, from from the rawest, crawling-in-the-gutter paganism to what it means to be a Christian. The whole thing. Flip ahead just four chapters to 1 Corinthians 6.11. I'll show you what Paul means. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So do you see? The Christian has lived in both worlds. And so we can speak of both worlds from experience and observation and from a genuine grasp of the Word of God. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Carson helpfully notes The person without the spirit cannot properly assess what's going on in the spiritual realm any more than a person who's colorblind is qualified to make nice distinctions in the dramatic hues of a sunset or a rainbow or a person born deaf is qualified to comment on the harmony of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Those without the spirit cannot evaluate or understand a person with the spirit such a person is not subject to merely human judgments which doesn't mean we have nothing to learn from non-christians or that christians are always above correction and rebuke even from those who aren't believers no what it means is that the mind of christ is alien to the unbeliever and insofar as we have the mind of christ we will be alien to that unbeliever. What are you thinking? What are you doing? You live that way? You believe that? That's crazy. This is completely alien to them. Your priorities are this and this and this and not that? What's wrong with you? It's foolishness. That's what it's saying. We Christians, we're always being told, your perspective is so narrow. No. The truly narrow perspective is maintained by the sinner who's never tasted grace. By the fallen human being who's never enjoyed transforming insight 
afforded by the Holy Spirit into God's wise purposes. Carson again. From this perspective, it is idiotic. That is not too strong a word. It is idiotic to extol the world's perspective and secretly lust after its limited vision. That is what the Corinthians were doing. And that is what we are in danger of doing every time we adopt our world's shibboleths, dote on its heroes, admire its transient stars, and seek its admiration and play to its applause. God help us, New City. God help us. Don't you feel motivated, Christian, uh, to live in light of God's word better this week, having had heard this text preached? Man, this is just, it's so fundamental to the Christian life. Paul now brings his argument to a close with a biblical quotation drawn from Isaiah 40.13. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And in the context, that Old Testament quotation, it cuts two ways. On the one hand, it's it's an important reminder that no one can probe the depths of God's thoughts, let alone match wits with him. Unless the Spirit enlightens us, God's thoughts will remain deeply, deeply alien to us. We will judge his wisdom folly. And we will not assign the crucified Messiah his proper place. But on the other hand, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Which is another way of saying that we've received the Spirit of God. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we we understand something of God's wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. That sets us apart from the world. Radically, dramatically, absolutely. And therefore, implicitly, the world will not understand us either. We have the mind of Christ. So I'll just close by saying this. Get ready. Uh, This is just the way it's going to be in the fallen world that we live in for all the decades of our Christian lives. Just get ready. Expect opposition, Christian. Expect hatred. This passage reminds us of Jesus' words in John 15. I'd like us to turn there as we close. John 15, 18 to 21. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching... They will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In short, the gulf between the spiritual person, the person with the spirit, and the person without the spirit is immense. The chasm between the world and the people of God is unbridgeable, apart from the Spirit of God. It is therefore unbearably tragic when Christians begin to covet the applause of this world gone astray. I don't want to be 
that sort of Christian. I want to be obedient to God's word. God, help us all. I'll close with this. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Father, please wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. We don't want to love the world. It's ways, it's so-called wisdom. But because we're sinful, we're tempted to love the world in all kinds of ways. Please give us grace not to take pleasure in the world or to covet its praise or approval, to extol the world's perspective and secretly lust after its blind vision. Give us a biblical perspective, we pray. Give us an eschatological perspective. May we see the contrast of this portion of your word clearly. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.